You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are picking up with our coverage of Season 2 of Bugs. And we'll be looking at the first two episodes because they're two-parters. Entitled What Goes Up and Must Come Down. Synopsis, Episode 1. Team Bugs, because I refuse to call them gizmos, have been called in by the Space Technology Agency, or STA, to ensure the security of the Rex satellite launch. Rex is a top-secret mineral prospecting satellite being launched by a small, only recently democratic Southeast Asian island nation. Rather than refinancing their national debt or just defaulting on it like everyone else, they've bet their entire bankroll on this satellite launch. Their hope that it will immediately identify underground platinum deposits, which they can exploit. But there's a problem. There seems to be someone inside the program working against them. While Roz and Beckett handle the security review, Ed has been placed undercover in the Astronaut Payload Specialist Training Program. In a training accident, he is nearly killed. One of his fellow trainees is not so lucky and dies. The satellite uses a newly developed fuel cell technology, which is progressing too slowly. Roz and Beckett check it out and are nearly killed by the scientist in charge of the project. Before they can question him, though, he's killed when his car explodes. Later, we see someone plant a bomb in one of the trainee simulators, and moments later, Susan Vornholt, mission commander, assigns Ed to use that simulator. He narrowly escapes death by being just too awesome for words. One of his fellow less awesome trainees is not so lucky and dies. Later, on the way to a weightlessness test for the entire team of trainees, Vornholt catches Ed slipping off and reporting in. Just as she starts to accuse him of being the saboteur, the trainee van blows up. Vornholt and Ed narrowly escape death. All of the rest of the trainees are not so lucky and die. Looks like the World Bank is just a mustache-twirling villain as is any other bank, and they've decided to call in the loans of the beleaguered little Southeast Asian island nation. They're going to have to launch within 18 hours. Ed, being the only trainee not to uh, bomb out of the training program, volunteers to fly on the mission as the payload specialist. So it's off to Guyana for Ed Vornholt and Rex for the launch of the space shuttle Excalibur. Ross hacks into the STA's mission control so that she and Beckett can comfortably watch the launch from their offices, presumably with popcorn, rather than watch the launch from the actual mission control to which they have security access. Technically speaking, even the actual mission control isn't the actual mission control. That's in Guyana. From the comfort of their offices, 20-some minutes away from the action, they, they check the cameras that mission control wouldn't bother to look at during launch. Beckett notices the fuel cell is leaking. That could explode, so they call mission control. Except that the baddie, which has been revealed to be Mr. Zito, the head of training, has cut the communication lines. Beckett hops in the car and races to the STA. Ross, trying to reach a special receiver she gave Ed, climbs a secret hive listening tower to tap into their microwave dish. 
Beckett is intercepted by Zito and locked up. Roz reaches Ed and warns him, but Zito inserts himself into communications between the shuttle and Guiana Mission Control, preventing Ed's warning from causing the mission to be scrubbed. Beckett escapes and warns the mission controller at STA, but there is nothing they can do except find the baddie and re-establish communications with Guiana. Ed tries to get into the cargo hole and release the fuel cell before launch, which he does, but not until actually the shuttle launches and he's nearly killed in the process. Beckett finds Zito, but he escapes. Communication is re-established, and Beckett and Ross chase Zito in a high-speed car chase, ending with Zito's car exploding. Oh well, can't win them all. Guess we'd better get back to mission control and leave this burning car in the streets. There's no police in this universe, but there's probably street sweepers. As they leave, a fireproof zooted Zito climbs out of the exploded car and laughs at their stupidity. Ed manages to jettison the fuel cell before the sun rises on the shuttle, and things are looking good until the Starshield Space Laser Defense System goes active and shoots the shuttle. Ed and Vornholt are either dead, or as good as dead. The end of Episode 1. Alright, Episode 2. Forces of chaos are at work in the country of Katuma. The duplicitous vice president wants to take down the president and seize power. To that end, he has enlisted Mr. Zito to cause the Rex satellite project to fail. In addition to the chaos being introduced to the Rex satellite launch, he is also staging a series of fake terrorist attacks to force the president to resign. Things are looking bad for Ed and Vornholt aboard the Excalibur. Shot by a deadly space laser, the cargo bay doors have opened and the robotic arm has extended, then broken. If they are unable to bring the arm in, they cannot close the doors and they cannot return to Earth. Worse still, the STA were paid to deploy that damn satellite and deploy that damn satellite they must do. There are loans that have to be repaid and no bank in the world is going to cut you some slack just because your satellite launch was nearly blown up by a saboteur and exploded and then attacked by a space laser. All Ed has to do is spacewalk, uh, replace the satellite's fuel cell, manually release the docking clamps, input the super-secret activation code, which no one except the president of Katuma knows, and deploy the satellite. <laughs> Let's all hope none of those clamps are stuck. Meanwhile, Beckett must make nice with his ex-fiancée, who happens to be a GNC news reporter on the ground in the presidential palace in Katuma. All regular communications with Katuma have been disrupted by the terrorist attacks, but GNC has a dedicated uninterrupted satellite communication channel. Beckett needs her to get the code from the president. Ross has her work cut out, too. Sure, she could easily hack into mission control, but regaining control of the Starshield space laser system is beyond her. She's going to have to track down where Zito is overriding it from and gain access there. Why does she need to get control of the space shield? Her plan is to use... It to precision cut the robotic arm off the Excalibur, allowing them to close the bay doors. Back in space, darn it, one of those clamps is stuck. But remember, the banks are waiting, so Ed will have to manually detonate the exploding bolt, which destroys his tether, launching him into space. Luckily, he carries a cricket ball in his pocket, and he's able to throw that, generate some force, and get back to the shuttle. It might not actually be a cricket ball. Russ finds... The signal, with Beckett hot on her trail. Zito makes his reappearance and gets the drop on Ross, but she and Beckett mostly overcome him, although he does escape yet again. Space lasers to the rescue! Ross cuts the robot arm off in the nick of time, and the Excalibur can proceed home. With the satellite operating, Platinum is discovered within minutes, and Katuma is saves. Except it isn't. The the president, unaware of this, is on the verge of resigning. Beckett must call in another favor with his ex to get word to the president about the platinum. She begrudgingly helps him. Pity he hasn't got anything to barter with that would appeal to a reporter. 
Zito tries to stop the transmission, but is thwarted again by a defective fire suppression system. He escapes once more, but this time he has backup help in nifty uniforms. And they kill him. Since Vornhold is injured, Ed must pilot the Excalibur in for a landing. Sadly, Ed's time as an astronaut must remain a secret because the world must never know that any old riffraff could go into space. That privilege is reserved only for billionaire riffraff. The end. Well, um, I've got to say, they really packed it in. <laughs> they really packed it into these two episodes. I was watching the first one and thinking, wow, just a lot is going on here. And they they don't wait either, do they? Because it's it, I came into it knowing it was a two-parter and the the action's already underway by the time the the kind of um cold open for the first episode begins so yeah it, you you kind of think they they're already they're already going at this speed and it's they're playing it out over 2 hours they're not going to have enough to keep it going and to give them credit i think they do i think they did and i i think that they even managed if i did not know that was a two parter as i was getting maybe 10 minutes from the end I could conceivably believe that they were going to pull it out, deploy the satellite, and save the day by the end of the hour. And But instead, they just threw in further complication and well, it is, it, it's, it, dragged it out. Yeah, I mean, they do throw in further complication because, obviously, you mentioned it in the synopsis, they add in the, the kind of extra terrorist attacks, the, the kind of um, the Beckett love interest or past love interest <laughs> yeah. uh, extra story and all you know those kind of things that are additional stuff just to uh bulk it up i guess but fundamentally what you've got here is a structure where it's all built around this rocket launch this satellite launch in episode one which as you say could be a standalone story in its own right with a conclusion that comes about as a result of getting that rocket up, overcoming the saboteurs and deploying the satellite as required for the happy ending. But then the second episode is all based, and a nice title as well, is all based around the whole drama of getting them down safely, which Mm -hmm. is a legitimately exciting scenario in its own right. So I I think it is very, very well structured. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think probably the the biggest thing that bugs me is it, and I enjoyed Thank it. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it, but yeah, it, it is the how strict the bank is being about this, how they have really bet on this technology. Which you know, honestly, they could make a fortune just from this technology if they can discover platinum in about a minute and a half after launching this satellite. <laughs> they could farm that satellite out to anybody. Right. You know, you want to rent some time on our satellite? Sure. We'll bring this over your country for a few minutes and give you the readouts and, you know, have have fun. And um, but, you know, it it is that sort of the banks are just waiting there to foreclose on the country. And we are going to and the STA, which I can't quite figure out what it's supposed to be, because I think the boss there says, you know, we're a commercial venture. Yeah. So. We get a contract. We're going to put that. Uh, we're going to put that satellite up there. I don't care if it kills all my staff. 
We're <laughs> getting that satellite up. I mean, we've lost about, what, 15 people plus uh, potentially a, a space shuttle, which is, you know, not cheap. And the astronauts, which, you know, probably have insurance policies they're going to have to pay on and, and, and probably negligent files. I mean, it's far worse than whatever the monetary po- uh, cost would be to saying to Katuma, you know, I'm sorry, we, we cannot fulfill this contract. And, and, you know, every time we get to a point where it's just like, you've got minutes left to live, you're going to die, you've got to get this down, and Joy turns to the controller and says, we must get that satellite deployed in orbit. And they go, yeah, all right, fine, we're going to deploy the satellite. Ed, sorry, uh, you're going to have to blow up an explosion in your face now, because uh, we got to get that satellite up there. Don't care if you die blow it up that part did great on me a little bit every time that happened it's just like really <laughs> like at some point I, th- I think we'd all be pulling for them to be rescued and that would be the end of the 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 thing i i i, I actually think in comparison to some of the other plot holes in this that one pales into insignificance somewhat but i did want to ask just in task just in terms of that scenario mm-hmm. dick or what you know i mean this the question with bugs often comes down to is this is this a, a yarn and an exciting adventure spun out of present day technology and therefore not really science fiction or is this a kind of projection a bit into the future and because it's always the near future and because we're looking at a show that is 25 years old and yeah. most of the kind of near future stuff is now a couple of decades past. I'm wondering, would that would that have been a kind of setup for launching? You know, the the idea of commercial or or privately funded space flights. It's just, I mean, there's nothing else in the news apart from millionaires going up there at the moment. But back then, how were satellites getting launched? Because obviously there were a number of satellites up there at that point. How did they get up there? Well, you paid you paid somebody to do it. Uh, usually, but who, who, France. France was one. But um, but but they, a kind of a, a government space agency rather than a private outfit like this. Yes. 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 Right. So th- so this was... that this would have been one step ahead of where things were then in '96, perhaps. Except that the STA doesn't feel like a commercial organization. That well, whole it's... bit about. You know, Ed, this is top secret. We can't let people know you were up there. It's like, why? That doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I mean, other than just to, you know, deny Ed the fact that he's a, an astronaut. But it just was like, okay. I Well, I think I it's a way of getting a, getting a funny tag. Funny, in <laughs> inverted commas, tag scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah, by the standards of these tag scenes. I mean, I, I, I think there are a number of questions around the whole... The whole motive. So you've already alluded to the fact that the the bank is quite inflexible on this, which an inflexible bank is not that surprising to me, except that, as you say, this is a country that actually does have the capability to deploy extraordinarily expensive technology in the interests of this kind of speculative investigation into whether there are platinum deposits. And it's not necessarily the easiest and cheapest. It's just the fastest way of doing it. So, you know, the... You're having to spend a certain amount of disbelief around that. But then I I thought even more astonishing was the fact that there was, I've forgotten what it was actually called, the, the, the Starburst 
technology. Star Shield. Star Shield. Star Shield was mothballed in the same premises as the STA. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to have never actually been realised. It turned mm-hmm. out it had actually been realised. Built it right in the out, ISS. <laughs> it turned out that Zito had access to this, and yet the the means yeah. the means with which you I mean you you presume that Katuma had paid some sort of that the, they were they were employing. Zito or in fact Marcel to sabotage any efforts to discover platinum because their interest was essentially in obtaining power by bringing down the previous government and this was a way of bringing down the previous government except it's not the easiest way of bringing down the previous government and because Marcel or Zito or both of them have access to Starburst you're thinking well also this is there are all sorts of ways that they could surely have used that to make vastly more money than they would have been mm. getting from the Katuma government. I mean, this is an extraordinary technology that blows almost everything else out of the water. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you have to not think too hard about anything in this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, there there are some issues. And, you know, I I tried to allude to it in the, in the story. Uh, Beckett tries to get a favor from his fiance, ex-fiance, a reporter. It's like, would you like a story? <laughs> yeah. I have a story here that's going to be breaking pretty soon, and you can have it. <laughs> it's like, right? I mean, that's a career-making story right there. And never, never is it remotely... You know, does she have any remote interest in why he wants to do this or anything that a reporter would do? Uh, just, you know, uh, you, huh? Uh, now you want a favor from me. Oh. <laughs> Everything, everyone's interests and motivations are very, uh, they're very short sighted. They're very blinkered. They're, they're, they're very narrow, I think, is what, what I'm thinking. So you, so. Like, like you say, here, here's someone who is who is a reporter, but I'm I'm also thinking, well, you know, think about the bank's interests in this. Think about the the the, the Zito Marcel organization's interest in this. Even think about the Katuma opposition, who surely could find quicker and easier ways to bring the government down. Y- it, it's got yeah. to be narrow because you can't think about those wider things because then things stop making sense. You've just got to think of them in terms of their immediate interest is in X because, you know, that will lead to whatever their goal is. And don't think too much about anything else. Yeah, now you did ask me before this uh, began to uh, send you the synopsis to episode 10 from last season. And I noticed you're referring to Marcel uh, from that episode is that who that guy was supposed to be in prison at the end? Well, it's who he was, yes. Is that the same actor? It didn't even look the same to me. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. Okay, and, didn't and, get and that. I, th- I think the guns in this are supposed to be some sort of clue, although I'm not quite sure. Um, but, you know, they're kind of... Techno they're, bazooka. <laughs> they're, well, yeah, they're, they're sort of smaller, aren't they, than mm-hmm. the one we saw in, in Pulse. But they're, I, I guess they're meant to be a kind of echo of that i i I do just want to say 
while we're thinking about that device that when you pull a fire alarm, the sprinklers do not go off. That's not how they work. If you had electronic sprinklers, that would be a major fail. Sprinklers work by having a wax-like substance that's holding them shut and the heat melts it and they come on automatically. That's why they work. If you, that was wired up to the alarm system, you, you know, the power goes out in a fire and you're all dead. So I, I saw that and I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think that's how sprinklers work in TV land. Apparently I, not. No. They, I, I think yeah. this is a, this is a this is a common thing that people do set off sprinklers an awful lot in TV and film. So I I I I agree it's a it's a bit of a flaw but it's not something that bugs is solely the guilty party in terms it of It also didn't spray down on the rest of them. No. Just the bad guy. <laughs> ju- just the bad guy and and the you know the bazooka proving equally rubbish because you know who 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 needs a weapon that might work outdoors in the rain surely no (laughs) well in england yeah that's a thought i could see somebody doing it here but uh yeah (laughs) that was kind of that was kind of rubbish (laughs) and and then and then connected connected with that whole build-up to the reveal of marcel being the mastermind behind everything you have the fact that we have Zito himself, who is the mole within the organization, who is not known at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so you get the reveal of that. And then we get that about halfway through the first episode. And then at the end, he obviously gets killed. And you think, ah, oh, OK, it's going to be someone else. And then he gets unkilled. And you go, ah, oh, OK, it's not going to be someone else. And, and then it always... turns out it's someone else. Yeah. <laughs> and well, yes, because there, there is still a a reveal and fair you know fair enough to sort of to twist back away from that so that you're not spending your time thinking who could it be who could it be because then it's a bigger surprise when it comes but it seemed to me that or I, I got the impression all the way through almost all of both episodes that a key part of the way that Zito was operating was essentially that he was almost entirely a a, a one man band he didn't mm-hmm. he didn't use backup um or we, you know he 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 played everything very close to his chest and the way he did that was to was to use systems that were very very highly automated mm-hmm. and then suddenly and and you know in many cases, you thought, well, this, this, is, this is not the easy, again, this is not the easiest way to do things. But if that's the kind of operator you are, you're, you know, you're very untrusting, um, you're, you play things very close to your chest, and you have the capability to, to run, design, whatever, the, the, these very autonomous systems, then you can kind of understand his motivation in doing that. Because there were a number of situations where you thought, well, he, why, does, why doesn't he call whoever his boss is or why didn't he call in some people who are working for him and and get their help and he never does that and then suddenly at the end he does yeah i need backup i need backup and you know these guys are going to come and kill him right i mean that's that's pretty obvious but if you'd had them at some point earlier in the episode doing just something that would have made it slightly less screamingly obvious and 
avoided the question of why the hell did he not need any backup up until that point and then suddenly go for backup mm. yeah the other thing that i i question a lot and this is this is a nit but it's still Zito is being chased by beckett he gets out and he gets in his car beckett runs out hops in the car with Roz. they chase the guy around for a while it's a close chase they get to the point where they split off then they cut him off and his car blows up and i'm okay you know i'm okay with that because you know this is a show about explosions they don't check it that 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 part is like oh we'll just drive off there's an exploded car here they've done that before <clears throat> so yeah as you say there are there are there are no police so they don't even have to make a phone call no they don't, they don't have to do anything they just drive off on that situation they don't bother to check for survivors or anything like that and and then when Zito gets out, he is so bulked up in that fire retardant clothing. He's just like, at what point did he stop, get out of a car, take his clothes off, put the fire retardant clothing on underneath his clothes, put his clothes back on, get in the car, and somehow didn't manage for Ross to catch him? And why didn't the explosion itself, the force of the explosion, bits of the car being blown into his body, kill him? It's just, it was... Uh, like they didn't check he didn't even need to be in the car he could have been somewhere operating it by remote control on the corner <laughs> like anything, i thought they but... saw him jump i thought they saw him jump into the car because ross was outside they did. wasn't she when yes i when yes, becky came out did. so she knew he was in the car well wait 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 no she didn't see him she saw his car rush up to the gate but i thought we saw him jump into the car okay maybe i assumed that ross had seen that I mean, the the thing about that is, I really liked the idea. I liked the fact that they 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 would have they would have the the fire retardant stuff because you know they're doing all of this space stuff, mm-hmm. and it's a clever way of throwing off your trail. So it that that part of it made sense. I'm even willing to buy that they kind of rush off. I kind of would have liked them to make a call to the fire brigade, but they're not going to be able to make any kind of investigation while the car is hot. And they are there are there are urgent things that need their attention elsewhere, so it's kind of like priorities at that point. The thing that I think well, it certainly bothered me um was I mean the other the other thing kind of made this make sense was that we had a series of car bombs already so it was the same mo because that's you know that's how they got mcnair or he he got mcnair it's and it's that same mo but in all of those cases this is a kind of fairly standard car bomb where you get in you turn on the ignition and that that ignites the bomb yeah so how come that didn't happen in this case and why didn't it happen in this case timer well they ignite the car but why why timer. yeah why do that it that that's that's far the a that's far less reliable b that's a change of mo so why change mo um that i i kind of want them to be asking these questions it seemed a bit odd to me um it even seems odd to me in the sense of i i didn't really see why it would make it any more effective of a ruse if he gets blown up after the car chase rather than he comes out the building the car catches fire they go oh he's blown up and then he can sneak out and 
I don't know. That, well, that, if it was that, in the that, parking lot, maybe somebody would have actually looked. Perhaps, perhaps. But maybe it, security it, for yes. It, 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 it again it felt like something where it was it was arranged that way for the benefit of having a thrilling car chase leading yeah. up to an explosion rather than there being any logic to it and then not even any attempt to kind of wrap some sort of explanation around it just for the sake of the ultra pedantic people like me and i guess you know <laughs> It's oh, probably yeah. not made for the ultra pedantic people like me, and uh, probably not. Fair Most enough. shows aren't. <laughs> Most yeah. shows aren't. Yeah. But I, you know, I do think that the whole the whole show for a season two opener, I don't know. I just felt like this was up a notch from last season. I feel like they hit the ground running, and they they did pretty well. But especially because normally I... a two part episode does not work for me because they usually are, have to drag it. And and this one at least had the sort of up and then down aspects of it, two different facets of the story. So um, yes, as in they they had their own beginning, middle, and end, but they also had enough connections for it to feel part of a, a genuine two parter rather than just two stories mm-hmm. with a kind of a cliffhanger yeah. stitched in. But I but I I I I agree. I mean, we've spent already. Uh, quite a bit of time picking holes in the, the plot, uh, you know, <laughs> which is not not hard work. It has to be said, and yet I think we've both we've both agreed that we did enjoy watching this. And yeah. so I'm quite interested in why did this work? Why why was this fun to watch? I, you know, I I feel like I don't know. I I feel like the team was working together a little better. Not that they were disharmonious before is just they feel comfortable now um maybe they're just more confident in their in their acting in the parts i i think confidence is a huge part of this i think it i think i think it's there in the performances but i think it's i think it's broader than that in the i mean as a two-parter it's not just that they've had the confidence to open with a, a linked story like this They've gone into flipping space. Yeah. It it it's a big, big story, you know. This is this is Moonraker kind of territory. So yeah. you don't do that unless you feel pretty comfortable in the scenario that you're that you're building on. And so I I I think that it felt like they were they were a little bit uncertain at the start. And there were a lot of things where it felt to me like it wasn't really clear why we why we had this particular bunch of people behaving in this you know, operating in this particular kind of a way. The hive, the yeah, let's come together as a private outfit, but then let's hire ourselves out to governments and private agencies and what have you. And it it it's it's not quite it's not quite quite the the real world as as we would have known it in 1995 and now they've they've kind of got bugs bugs land sorted out i think they then they're not too bothered about the setup behind why why these three people are working together they're not too bothered about the 
as I say, the the realities of why Katuma would hire STA to do this or, or, you know, all these kind of things. It's very much more focused on let's just get in with the the exciting, you know, we're, we're, let's pace it. Let's make sure that we do have explosions and chases and danger and people getting trapped in vacuum chambers and people getting blown <laughs> into space and trapped up there you know every few minutes so that you don't have time to think about those other things so and i and I, so i i i think that i think that comes from the fact that they've they've committed to that now yeah i think i think they've they're unapologetically running with it all i think that's that's probably right and you know it, i'll i'll take that I'll take that. It's one thing if you're going to, you know, decide, well, I'm a little hesitant, but we can just get away with this. Or you just go and go, nah, this is, that is a difference. That is a difference with the Avengers, which is, yes. n- particularly the letters of no one could ever mistake that for not full of horrific plot holes because of the unreality of the situation of it. But you don't care because they they sell it because they they believe it they just they wink at you and say let's go have some fun with us and this is they feel like they've they might have gotten much closer to that here in this episode and has this guy written any other stories that that we've seen so far colin brake yeah he yeah he did um he did one in the last season it was the pen, it was the penultimate episode of the season the the um the one with the 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 uh what do you call it running machine that oh was yeah going to make yeah, yeah. everything explode a sporting chance yeah eh, i don't remember what i thought of it but i i i felt like he was doing this pretty you know for example he did a really good job of making me believe vornholt was in on this ah <laughs> Yep. You know, you see you see the hand placing and, you know, look at the old days on British television when just by seeing a hand, all you know is that they're Caucasian. So therefore, you're ju- they're just one of the cast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you can't draw any clues from that. And uh, uh, place the bomb and then Vornholt comes in and goes, all right, Ed, you go first. It's like, oh, see, that's that's like and when when he steps aside after he's done, Vornholt and the one other trainee are standing back and and talking to each other in such a way that you could suspect they think something's going to happen, and yep, it doesn't, and it it's uh, it's good. I mean, it 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 worked. I wasn't entirely sure I knew it was Zito until it was revealed that it was him. Oh, I was, I. Yeah, it. I mean, not. A I mean, he has the look. Before, but by the time it was revealed, I was certain. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. There's some. There's something about him that. Yeah, he's got. He's got that look for the '80s, '90s villain guy. Yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's the, the hair, the, the Mac, clothes, the or Max Sorin kind of um, appearance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it. I think it is very well done. Colin Brake, by the way, has. Um, I'm not sure what else he's done, but I know his his work on um, some of the big finish Doctor Who range, mm. which, you know, some of those stories I, I really like, some of them a bit less so. I I, th- I think 
there is possibly another aspect to this, which is that I notice that there is a second credit for series consultant on the show now. So we've mentioned the fact that Brian Clemens is credited as a series consultant on this because obviously, and the, you know, the fact that you talk about it having its own world, the fact that I referred to it as Bugs Land is in connection with the fact that there was a sense in which this wanted to be the Avengers or sort, you mm-hmm. know, there, there certainly was a, a buzz around it, the kind of Avengers for the 90s kind of a thing. But we've now got, series consultant Brian Clemens and Stephen Gallagher on here. So I'm wondering if if Stephen Gallagher is is playing more of a role in shaping the the stories because I I I mean we we saw him write a number of episodes in the the last series, I think some of the better episodes in the last series and now perhaps we're seeing him working oh. on uh the the kind of the the show overall. It could be, but on the flip side, sometimes uh, a credit like that is given to someone for not doing a lot, but they want their name attached. <laughs> right? Carlin Ellison comes to mind on Babylon Five. Basically, yes, did yes. nothing, but you know he's got a he's got a, a pervasive credit there, and it's. You know, so I could see Brian Clemens, if they had anything to do with it, it's like you are you are the the invaders, you know, created by and I can't think of the guy's name. uh, He basically got in a fight with a producer and got kicked off, but they couldn't remove his name. They paid him forever and he's on every episode. (laughs) It's like so I don't know. I I, I could love to know what really happened there. I I really would like to know. Well, well, indeed, I I think it's interesting because he He's not. Be, he's not been credited as the, the the script consultant on the first season. So it's not like his name's been on there and now it can't be taken off. Mm-hmm. It's also he's he he's perhaps a slightly different quantity in comparison to Brian Clemens at this point. Again, it's hard to sort of um, remember back. But, but but Brian Clemens, he's he is the kind of the driving force behind the later Avengers, behind the professionals, all mm. of uh, Thriller, you know, he in in TV terms, he's kind of royalty. And having his name attached, even if he weren't doing anything, would have a distinct benefit for the show. I'm not sure that at this point, Stephen Gallagher is as... he, he He's much earlier in his career. I mean, obviously, he's written a couple of well-regarded Doctor Whos, but he's a he's a younger man he's he's perhaps not necessarily someone who having their having their name in the credits is going to give any additional cachet so i i i think i think the script work he's doing on here is is probably more than just nominal i thought that he was one of i thought he and clemens created this show in the first place i i don't know where i got that from but i i had always been in my mind that this was a Brian Clemens, Stephen Gallagher concept, and that Stephen Gallagher was was the one that was running with it, and Brian Clemens was doing whatever Brian Clemens was doing. But yeah, it, I, I yes, cachet is one one possible reason. Another possible reason is paying them off for something that you know you're not 
or we don't, we don't have a, you're going to be helping, but we don't have a specific job. You know, there writer story by all these things have very clearly defined roles in the union rules, but series consultant is pretty broad. You know what? Okay. What, okay. what does that mean? But, uh, I mean, you know, I call call you up okay. on the phone and say, what do you think about this idea? Sure. Great. I don't know. It, I I just I don't know, and I'm not trying to diminish it. He may be, he may be literally doing the job of a story editor or the showrunner or whatever it is, which is what you would think you'd want him to be doing if he was the guy that was shaping shaping it. Series consultant just seems kind of abstract, interesting but abstract. I don't know. I th- I think I mean again in in the in in terms of there being a kind of him him doing him having real input in the show well he wrote four episodes of season one so he had the input there he's also down on i noticed the in, in the credits obviously we haven't got to them yet he's also down as having written three episodes in season two so that's similar kind of you know is that's Workload. that's not much short of what he did for for season one i think that the fact that he is actually involved in the show but has this kind of credit for working on the scripts more generally i i i think that is where you have developed the idea that stephen gallagher is was a a a driving force behind this show it's because he it's because he's coming in in season two in a, a more a more overarching role shaping the show okay I mean, in terms of why it's enjoyable, I'm going to put down uh, another possible reason, which is 90s nostalgia. It kind of feels strange calling it that because obviously for you to be nostalgic about something, it has to be from a kind of bygone era. The 90s was only yesterday. What is this nonsense? Yeah. But but, um, except it does actually turn out to have been, you know, over two decades and... 90s fashion seems to be or sort of 90s revival seems to be in fashion at the minute but i guess you know for for me it it's because i do remember seeing it at the time and also because as we're talking about it's you know the 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 kind of avengers land world of the 1960s it it captures an era but it captured it in the sense of the 60s wasn't like that i mean it it was just it's it completely its own thing and equally this is not in any sense a kind of kitchen sink rendition of what life was like in the 90s it's just it's a piece of pop culture that you can't really imagine having been made any other time and so i'm enjoying that i think <laughs> yeah i i i mean i the 90s is not uh that's not the reality of my 1990s so i i and i didn't see the show i'd never heard of the show before we started working on it so i'm not getting any nostalgia out of it for me i i i am i, I am amused by the clothing and the hair uh <laughs> sometimes i mean when when zito is arriving at the uh at the facility where he's got the space shield to to track down ross and he just gets out of the car and i'm like Wow. I, I would have said 80s, but, you know, wow. Look at that look. Look at those glasses. Look at that haircut. Look at those clothes. <laughs> that, that's TV. That, that's Hall & Oates <laughs> or something. I just, it, it, 
He looks like he should be in a band, is what it looks like to me. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I don't know. I, I just, it, it was just, it was fun. It was fun. It's got, it's got its holes. It, it's got that really annoying bit about how gravity doesn't work in the, in the hold, but gravity works just fine inside the command module. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting <laughs> choice on their part. I couldn't quite figure out why they did that. It was very delineated. They were fine in the command console as soon as he'd go back into the thing. I guess when you didn't have any air anymore, then there was no gravity or something, but you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you may be, you may be uh, trying to apply too much logic what? there. Yes, yes. I was also a little concerned about Beckett. I don't think you can get bends from rapid compression, but I wonder if I wonder if that could have been a problem. About Beckett or about when Beckett Ed. was in the air decompressor and they oh, were sucking the air out yes. and she yes. shatters the window yes. and then he just like <sighs> I know if it was the other way around he'd probably have the bends and die. Right? I was he more was worried being... about him getting cut by all the glass. But I again, you know, in the not thinking too hard department, right. how would you how would you actually evacuate the air from a capsule like that? Yeah. I mean if, when the controls aren't working and you can't uh, can't override them with your with your techie magic. No, I mean, like, normal six foot fan. Yeah, looks cool. <clears throat> I can't oh, yeah. see how that could possibly work. Yes, and I imagine you could break that fan too somehow. I'm more surprised his coat didn't just destroy it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was. Also, we should we should pay we should pay homage to the technology when Roz Sonics the electronic locks. On buildings. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, that was that was a little bit much. So electronic clock. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> Slink. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, that's the the classic the classic bug sci-fi, isn't it? It's the mm-hmm. it's the the gizmo that does the clever thing in a way that it would not be possible for it to do. But maybe in nine six, think well, yeah, but that technology exists. It's just we don't have it yet. Works for the doctor. Yeah. Yeah, that was a little a little bit. The other thing that that kind of I don't know. I hate to even pick like I say, I think I think the, the, the key here is that if you can if you can go into a show and you can throw all sorts of things like that and you can make the audience not care, right? Then and they're just having fun, then then that's great. And and if you're in that mindset and I, I was in that mindset, they threw me in it right away. Um it was you know, it was it was good and enjoyable and I Thing. I still had a little bit of an issue with Ed having to land the shuttle. <laughs> I don't think Ed had been in a training program to be a pilot. He'd been in a training program to be a mission payload specialist. And I'm also a little concerned that they hadn't <laughs> even gotten to the waitlist training until 18 hours before the flight. Yeah, I mean, I was... Like, I was... Th- those guys were not ready to go, any of them. None of them were ready to go. But Again, you know, he... again... It, it, it was all it was all about whether whether you would do whether whether you whether you would be able to to take part in a mission like that with so little training. Yeah, <clears throat> but you know that Don't satellite's got to get up there. <laughs> it's like we got to put the satellite. Anyway, my the the where I was kind of going with that is I've seen many videos, and there's one in this right of the of the space shuttle landing, and. I don't know why, but they don't look real. 
And I will, I will clarify that. In 1982, STS-3, the third space shuttle mission, could not come in and land, and I think it's at Edwards, where they were coming down at, in California at that day. So STS-3 had to land in New Mexico at White Sands. Uh, a friend and I went to see that. So I saw the Columbia come down and land. And it doesn't look like what you see on TV. It looks more like that thing's coming down at 45 degrees. If you have not trained to do that, you're going to spatter that thing all over the ground. I, I don't care how good of a pilot Ed is. <laughs> it's like, I just, yeah, I had some just like real trouble. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a brick coming out of the sky is what it looks like. <laughs> I, I, the, the closest thing I've ever say is that I've, uh, you know, I, I kind of compare it to the, the one time I went skydiving and skydiving in films looks nothing like skydiving skydiving you're just falling it's just a terrifying fall i will never do this again it was a stupid stupid idea <laughs> but you know it's no cool moonraker stuff going on there you're just falling and uh hurtling to your death and and the shuttle coming down looks a bit like that i mean it's not that straight but i mean it's it, it just <laughs> it's really bizarre looking coming down and and yeah i just i would suspect that you'd have to be have a lot of hours in the simulator before you could you could hope to pull that one out it it's it's nasty but uh yeah let's see uh, got anything else on this episode um tri- tribute to um to the cast i think the cast made it enjoyable too i think that as you've alluded to the kind of the arc for Vornholt was quite nicely done the 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 way in which she was suspicious there was then this you know this kind of growing respect between her and Ed and I also thought they were just going to kill her off and so I was really glad that they didn't but also I thought Leslie Vicarage was great I've only seen her in between the lines she plays a major role in the first series of Between the Lines. I thought she was really good in this as well. In terms of the cast, I mean, we mentioned Gareth Marks coming back as John Daniel, but we, I mean, he was hardly in it for a second. Did you recognise, you probably didn't because you've seen it fewer times than me, but the guy who played McNair, he was... He looked familiar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thomas Lockyer, he plays, um, he plays the vampire Jacob in Ultraviolet. The, the, the the kind of rival for uh oh god what's her name oh uh, his girlfriend's the one that <clears throat> yeah woos her and pukes in the toilet when he's eating her dinner hey you got it yeah yeah so that so that's that's who that is um david yep he was in everything back then i think oh yeah back that's then, the president of katuma i'm i think he might that's still be that's the president he's of katuma the, the um the Usurper, the rebel, the oh, the rebel, okay, the 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 the, the, confidant the vice president, who, yeah, yes, um, I believe he was in Destiny of the Daleks, in fact, so he has Doctor Who. Um, that name sounds pedigree. awfully familiar. He wasn't. He wasn't the. He wasn't the. The Chinese detective was he? TV in series Destiny of the Dark. Oh no no no! TV I series. I don't remember the picture. In the seventies. There was a TV series called The Chinese Detective, and it had somebody in it that looked a lot. That name sounds awfully familiar there. I don't want to say looks alike, because that would just be 
horrible of me, but I, his he was familiar, and detective so was Sergeant the president. John Ho. Yes, no, you're you're right. You're right. Yep, he was in the Chinese detective. He was also in the Quatermass, the Quatermass conclusion or Quatermass, okay. as it was. So yeah, loads of stuff. There was also just completely coincidentally a another Bugs destiny of the daleks connection in the sense that i believe destiny of the daleks was directed by ken grieve who directed about half of the episodes in series one Hmm. okay all right uh what have we got next time bugged wheat bugged wheat hmm okay why do i have a feeling that that should be that's a play on something that i don't quite get is it play on buckwheat or <laughs> i wouldn't have got it if it were if it were i have no idea what it's what if it's a play on anything what it's a play on but that seems huh. stretching it a bit <laughs> yeah i know but it feels <clears throat> it feels like it's meant to be a pun but i i because it, it yeah, i don't know meaningless every, every every other episode has had slightly more meaning i think Maybe uh, there'll be something in the episode that explains it. Uh, maybe we'll have to. Maybe it'll be the it'll be the pun at the end. Oh, we cannot leave. We cannot leave without asking whether or not they have improved the tag scenes. Well, they improved the tag scene in episode one by just having a cliffhanger and no tag scene. So, well, I'm counting just the one at the end of episode two. Yeah, not really. See, now I kind of felt like they had given up on the tag scene style that they were trying in the first series, which was always having some thing going on, like running a train or crushing a car. or That wasn't here. This is just a more traditional, our heroes are having a little wrap-up conversation at the end that's actually about this case, and nothing goofy is going on, and they just, you know, sort of could have almost ended with a freeze frame and a laugh if they'd tried it instead of... Instead of that, I, I'm not I, saying I, it was I, a good joke. It was just saying that it was. It didn't feel like the tag scenes from the previous year. I think there was a similarity in the sense that in the previous season there were those tag scenes where they would have a laugh at someone's expense. Um, thinking about a sporting chance, actually, with the with uh, Ed's medal or whatever. And in this one, they were having a laugh at Ed's expense because of his. losing it yeah losing out on the fame of 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 having been part of this or being a crucial part of this incredibly high profile now high profile um space mission yeah (laughs) but but as you say for no for no reason there's, there's no reason for him to kind of be hidden from that other than to to make this a joke in the tag scene yeah different room too i think i didn't think it was but maybe they've just changed the decor a def- different angle different angle but i at first i thought it was a different room and then i thought no it's it's Roger's apartment hmm. all right well next time bugged wheat simon thank you for joining me it's a pleasure as always <laughs> listeners i do hope you'll join us all again next time on fusion patrol We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. 
Find out how you can become a supporter at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series, Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.